Welcome to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. And in this episode, we'll be continuing our look at Pierre or the Ambiguities by Herman Melville. Uh, this was published in 1852, um, and it's his first novel that really doesn't cover the sea in any direct way. Um, all his previous six novels did that. Um, now I'm not sure when he wrote his short stories that show up later in the Piazza Tales, but um, basically he was known as a sea writer. His fame was built on Taipei and Omu. When he tried to do more experimental things like Mardi, he got basically rejected by the literary audiences and the critics. He returned to more mainstream sea fiction and uh, quasi-fictional stories, I should say, with White Jacket and and Redburn. Then he wrote Moby Dick, another commercial and critical failure. Um, and then um, in Pierre, he, he kind of moves on. He continues. He pushes on. He doesn't retreat back to uh, sea fiction. Maybe he didn't have much more to say about it. I mean, he has Billy Bud, but you know, he kind of moves from those themes and, and pushes on into really ex exploring, you know, trying to make his name out as a make his name as actually a literary um, figure of, of some note. And again, it's a big major failure in Pierre. Pierre is, it was probably his greatest failure up to that time. I don't, I don't know how Marty sold, but Pierre was, was ridiculed in the press. Uh, no one really read it. It wasn't accepted at all. And it was just yet another failure. But it, you know, some critics think nowadays think that Melville is being quite cathartic in this novel, especially in the character of Pierre, who is a similarly frustrated writer. There's a whole subplot here with him as a frustrated writer that doesn't really need to be there. Um, it, it gives some, I guess, character to the second half of the novel, giving him some motivations beyond the main plot. But it seems in those, those parts, Melville really is uh, exploring his own failures as as a writer. Now the heart of the story of course is about this this young boy Pierre engaged, rich, living on an idyllic countryside with his with his widowed mother, uh, ready to start his new life after marrying after marrying the beautiful Lucy Tartan, who he finds out that he has a, a long lost half sister. At least the supposed one is never really confirmed in any clear way that that she is. What we have evidence, I mean there is evidence presented, there's rumors of his father having affairs, but there's never proof, right? So if you want to say it's incest, it's incest at, at, at least in the mind of Pierre and Isabel. Um, now, it's not clear they, they ever had sex either, but it's it's heavily implied, I think. They, they essentially do marry in the second half of the novel, go off to live together. But, uh, you know, it's, it's all really an incest in the mind, right? Because it's possible they aren't related. It's possible all of this is just coincidence. Um, but that's the main plot here. So in the first half of the story, you know, Pierre learns about this half-sister, gets her backstory, compares his backstory with his own, uh, the stuff he's heard about his father, and then comes to the conclusion, yes, this woman, Isabel, actually is my half-sister. Now, what to do about this? On the one hand, he wants to save his father's reputation. He wants to save his mother's grief. He wants to restore Isabel to her proper family, and she, he wants to make sure she's taken care of. Um, but at the same time, he feels broke. He feels his relationship with his dead father broken. He, he that aura of who his of whose father was, a great leader. His grandfather was a war hero. That is broken. That that kind of feeling of sentiment for his ancestry is broken. At the same time, 
uh, his feelings about religion are broken. There's a character named Falgrave who is dealing currently with a bit of a scandal. That is the illegitimate daughter, um, or I don't know if it's a daughter or son, but an illegitimate kid um, by a woman named Dolly Ulver, who's like a servant in the local community. And her boyfriend, I think was named Ted or something. But they're trying to deal with this and you know, the, the conclusion is basically we come down hard on them. We don't help them out. We, we kind of ostracize them from the community. When Pierre hears this, he, of course, connects his own half-sister's experience with uh, this story, and he turns his back even on religion. So a lot of the things that he had comfort from that were stabilizing force in his life, like religion and family, are all rejected by him by the midpoint of the story. But where we left off in Chapter 9, he hasn't yet fully decided what he's going to do. Um, so in this part of the book, we're going to uh, we're going to look at pages or chapters book. They're they're not chapters in this, this story. They're they're called books. We're going to look at books nine through no ten through eighteen. So nine. So in a hundred pages, he presents ten almost ten different books. Right. That's just the name he Melville uses for chapters in this particular story. Um, and what happens here? Well, we got basically his decision to to marry Isabel, elope with her, to turn his back on his family and to go into the city. And we also learn a little bit of his background as a writer. This is kind of thrown into the story, starting really in chapter, sorry, not chapter again, I, I mean book, book 17, where we learn that Pierre's been writing and been making a name for himself in literary circles. And people have been kind of eager for more of his work. We never really heard this before, and I don't know if Melville added this later as that kind of, again, that cathartic experience to reflect on his own failures as a writer, but nonetheless, this is kind of thrown into the mix. So that's all that really happens in this part of the story, but as always, it's, it's as I talked about in the previous two episodes, what's great about this book and what's interesting about this book is just how it's written in a sense that it even exists overall. It's so weird. The prose is very odd. The narration is odd. The circumstances of course are very strange as well with incest overhanging everything even the way he talks with his mother at times everything is overblown and, and exaggerated especially in the first half um, and that's kind of continues even into the second half although the writing gets a little bit easier to handle i think towards the end when it gets a, a little bit more plotted we actually actually see the plot progress I, i'm actually shocked rereading this you know, in half of this relatively long novel, very, very little happens in the first half. It's, it's mostly uh, over, over, overwritten. And I think that's Melville doing it on purpose, maybe in a mocking way, maybe mocking popular romantic text or, or kind of English style romantic writing. Uh, what forever is he's doing it? I'm not really sure. You know, there's not that much happens in the first half of the story. It's literally just this guy, his life, Finds out he's got a half-sister, gets the story from her and says, oh, you know, that means my father was a, a bit of a philanderer. What to do? Um, well, we're going to find out in chapter, sorry, not once again chapter, uh, book 10. Book 10 is called The Unprecedented Final Resolution of Pierre, Pierre. So as this implies, the title implies he makes this decision about what he's going to do about the fact that he has this, this half-sister. Um, he still has all this conflict in him over between his family and his devotion to Isabel, his devotion to Lucy, his fiancée. And here's what Melville writes. 
from the first determined at all hazards to hold his father's fair fame inviolate from anything he should do in reference to protecting Isabel and extending to her brother's utmost devotion, devoutness and love and equally determined not to shake his mother's lasting peace by any useless exposure of unwelcome facts. And he had vowed to his deepest soul some way to embrace Isabel before the world and yield to her his constant consolation and companionship in finding no possible mode of unitedly composing all these ends without a most singular act of pious imposture, which he thought all heaven would justify in him, since he himself was to be the grand self-renouncing victim. Therefore, he was... This was his settled and immovable purpose now, namely to assume before the world that by secret rights, Pierre Glendinning was already become the husband of Isabel Banford, an assumption which would entirely warrant his dwelling in her continual company and on equal terms, taking her wherever the world admitted them, and at the same time foreclose all sinister inquisitions bearing upon his deceased parents' memory or any way affecting his mother's lasting peace. So that's the hope. That's the hope that if he just marries her, uh, he can save kind of face for everyone that's what he says there's actually deeper motives here uh we've seen really pretty much from page one that he's been desperate for a sister he's been desiring to have this connection with with uh another person uh a, a sister he even calls his mother's sister during their intimate conversations now the problem here of course is he can't tell lucy his fiance the real reason he's marrying isabel he can't say i still love you but this devotion to my sister and to my father's memory and his his standing in in society and how he's remembered is more important than my relationship to you he can't say that because that exposes the the lie he's trying to hide to the public so he essentially has to basically dump lucy for another woman and make her think that so he has to essentially break her heart at the end of chapter 10 there's a very interesting kind of return to sea fiction just at least metaphorically here, in which our narrator connects Pierre's uh, feelings of being trapped, being faded. That's been the theme throughout the whole first half of the novel, of course, is this over this burden of fate bearing down on him. Um, and this gets connected to the experience of sailing. Um, and, you know, for obvious reasons, Melville kind of throws in this, this metaphor. That's what he was known for. Uh, he might be tweaking the nose of his audience a little bit or really. I guess he didn't have much of an audience for this book, but at least reminding them, yeah, this is why you like me. You like this, this sea stuff. I'm going to throw some in for you. He writes, Weary with the invariable earth, the restless sailor breaks from every enfolding arm and puts to sea in height of tempest that blows offshore. But in long night watches at the antipodes, how heavily the ocean gloom lies in vast bales upon the deck, thinking that the very moment in his deserted hamlet home, the household sun is high and many a sun-eyed maiden meridian as the sun. He curses fate, himself he curses, his senseless madness, which, in, which is himself. For whoso once has known this sweet knowledge and then fled it in absence to the avenging dream will come. Pierre was now this vulnerable god, this self-abrading sailor, this dreamer of the avenging dream. Though in some things he has unjuggled himself and forced himself to eye the prospect as it was. Yet so far as Lucy was concerned, he was at bottom still a juggler. Um, now, there's also a discussion here about this idea of gods coming to earth and taking human form and facing human uh, uh, inadequacies. But whether it's uh, leaving his exalted position as kind of the, the, the sky, scion of this estate, or whether it's, uh, you know, that, that's kind of metaphor of, of the god coming down to earth, 
you know, marrying Isabel, or whether it's the sailor kind of entering into facing fate fearlessly or whatever. There's different metaphors uh, Pierre is playing with. And that's that's common throughout this whole book is, you know, is these kinds of metaphors that that point to kind of Pierre's delusions of grandeur. I, I think there's a lot of that going on in the story. He he he. He's essentially, he's just marrying a servant girl he met that he's kind of enamored with because she claims to be his sister. I mean, there's not much more going on here, but in his mind, everything is, is inflated into, into greatness. So chapter 11 is called, or sorry again, chapter book 11 is called He Crosses the Rubicon. And this is just what it sounds. He's married her by this point in the story. The marriage is all done off screen. It's an elopement. And he first goes to see Lucy and just walks, walks in on her and before, without too much prelude, no attempts to say sorry, no attempt to explain. He just says, Lucy, I'm married. And essentially we're done. And we don't get any kind of follow-up because Lucy passes out and, and that's it. Uh, she later wakes up and her servant Martha's there and... She's a brief conversation with her, but that's it. Um, Pierre leaves the, the chamber without any kind of apparent remorse for what he's done to Lucy. Again, it's already explained why he feels he has to do it in this way, this particular manner. But it's all, it's still pretty brutal. Um, next, he turns to his mother and to his mother, he says basically the same um, brutal way that, you know, I'm married to someone. I'm, it's not Lucy Tartan. It's someone else. And almost instantly, his mother, Mary, kicks him out of, of the estate and says, you know, for this shame to our family, you are you're expelled, right? Uh, he does write a note to Dates, the servant, basically to get his things together, and he begins to prepare to, to leave, to, to leave the estate and head off to, to the city. Oh, the estate, by the way, is called Sally Meadows. I don't think I've said that too much, but... Um, it's that idyllic countryside is going to be replaced with the city and that's where the second half of the story is going to to take place chapter or sorry again book 11 is pretty short it's only a few pages but it deals with these two very abrupt encounters where he just goes up to first lucy and then his mother both just saying without too much embellishment that that he's married that's the only way he can think of doing this without risking the reputation of his father or risking the reputation of his mother. So book 12, it's called Isabel, Mrs. Glending, the Portrait, and Lucy. And essentially we're going to get different scenes in, in, a, in a book of about 14 pages. We're going to get these four different scenes uh, with these characters and how they deal with the aftermath of, of the shocking news that, that Pierre has married this nobody this isabel i mean no one else knows the relationship between isabel and pierre at least the supposed relationship again it's never it's never really confirmed um, he explains to her that he kept the secret from from his mother and from lucy so her secret is safe her of her background and and their relationship is secret and they they talk about their relationship and he he offers her um or he at least talks about the extent to which they're going to have to lie and, and deceive others in order to keep their own secret in place. 
He says to her, Thou hintest of deceiving one for one's good. Now supposing, sweet Isabel, that in no case would I affirmantly deceive thee, in no case whatsoever would thou then be willing for thee and me to piously deceive others, for both their and our united good. Thou sayest nothing. Now then it's my sweet my turn, sweet Isabel, to bid thee speak to me. Oh, speak to me. And what she wants from him, her response to him is simply to be careful with her, to be cautious with her, to... Uh, you know, to protect her heart, and not, and says not to embrace in the brutality that he did with with these other people, which he supposedly loves, his mother and 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 Lucy, and then he just explains that you know, while I don't really know much of the world, I'm not really that experienced in it. We're going to have to be careful, and you know, you know, not be not be too reckless. That we are going to go into the city and we're going to take Delhi over with us. Delhi over is this woman who had this illegitimate child, right? And we're all going to go into the city. I don't think it's ever defined which city they're going to, but we're going to live our life there as best as we can. So the next little scene we get is Mrs. Glendinging, who approaches Mr. Fallsgrave. He's the, like the local preacher, the local religious um, leader. And she brings the news about Pierre and what he's done. And her words are, are pretty harsh. He, he asks, like, who does, who did Pierre marry? I mean, what's been going on here? And Mrs. Glendinging's response is, some slut, I tell thee. I am no lady now, but something deeper, a woman, an outraged and pride-poisoned woman. It is an hour of woe to thee, and I can, oh, the, no, this is um, Mr. Fallsgrave. It is an hour of woe to thee, and I confess my cloth have no consolation for thee yet a while. Permit me to withdraw from thee, leaving my breast prayers for thee. That thou mayest know some peace ere this now shut down sun goes goes down. Send for me whenever thou desireth thee. May I go now? And she says, Be gone, and let me hear no more thy soft mincing words, which is an infamy to a man. Um, so she's also now kind of turned her back on the 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 religious anodyne, seeing it as useful. Now Pierre already got there. Pierre figured out that there's nothing, there's no real moral heart in religion, based on how they deal with illegitimacy. And here, the mother, the scorned mother, turns her back on religion because it offers no real recourse to, to her, the, how she's been slighted by her son and this, this um, Isabel. But he does explain to her, to him, that uh, she's kicked out Pierre out of the house. And he's no longer welcome in the estate. Basically, she's disowning him, making an official proclamation of disowning Pierre. Now, if I'm not wrong, this is the last time we actually see Mary Glendinging in the in the story in person. She's referenced uh, a few more times, but that, that's the last we see of her. Um, now, she also does have dates. The servant get rid of all of Pierre's stuff and throw it outside, which is what Pierre wants. Anyways, he's he's leaving. Um, now, the third scene is between we're back with uh, Pierre and and Isabel. And what he does is he takes some of his stuff, specifically the portrait of, of his father and various kind of documents of his family, and he burns them all. But he, he does look at the picture one more time, the picture of his father, and confirms in his mind that Isabel is related to him. Melville writes, There seemed to lurk some mystical intelligence and vitality in the picture, because since in his own memory of his father, Pierre could not recall any distant lingament, 
transmitted to Isabel, but vaguely saw such a in portrait in the portrait. Therefore, not Pierre's parents as any way resembling by him, but the portrait paint itself seemed the real father to Isabel. For so far as all sense went, Isabel had inherited one peculiar trait, no whither traceable but to it. Now, this is an important way, the way it's worded. He sees a resemblance in Isabel, but it's never defined what it is. It's not the nose or the eyes or the cheekbones or something. It's, it's somehow he sees the picture and he sees a feature of Isabel, but it's never said what, what it is. So I think this allows us to keep this doubt in our, in our minds that this is just a fantasy of, of Pierre and Isabel, that they're, that they're sister and brother, half-sister half-brother. But anyway, they burn all this stuff of his father, all the stuff he has, and while doing this, he burns his, his hand. And the final scene is just Lucy moping around in her chamber, not really handling this news very well. A lot of it, this is from the perspective of, of Martha the servant, who's trying to deal with the fact that her, that, that Lucy is, is kind of losing her mind, depressed, he needs a doctor, like yeah, there's been actually a doctor brought in to, to help her. So that's that's book uh, 12, where we really see the consequences of, of Pierre's declaration uh, to various groups. Basically, it leads to him being forced to leave um, the, the estate and him turning this back entirely on his family, symbolized by the burning of, of his father, even though it seems on some level this has some... Image of his of Isabel. You know. Now I wonder. I think we can actually read this that he's burning this evidence, his father's papers and and the picture, because they actually have no evidence of the relationship. Pierre wants to believe in this that this is her, his half sister, and he somehow on some level knows the picture does not show a resemblance. That the documents show no relationship with this French woman. So he wants to erase the, the evidence that, that she's not a half-sister. It's like um, a kind of a strange way, reason to destroy evidence. You're destroying evidence of a, of a negative, I guess, um, because he wants to believe this. And, and he's, he's moving on in his life, and he's already crossed the Rubicon, right? He can't go back at this point. So he wants to do it for the right reasons. He wants to convince himself that it's for the right reasons. And I, I don't know, that, that's just one way I, I, I kind of read it at the time. I, I think it's possible that this is still uh, kind of in his mind and in Isabel's mind. I mean, Isabel came to him first. She was the one who was first convinced of the relationship, but then Pierre didn't waste any time in believing it. Book 13, there's not much to say about this. They just, it's called They Depart the Meadows, and that's all that really happens. It's, it's only three pages long, and they... They head off the three of them. Okay, book 14 is called The Journey and the Pamphlet. And what happens in this chapter is just they're going in their carriage to, to the city and Pierre reads a pamphlet by this guy, Plotius Plinum. And it's called uh, Lecture the First Chronometricals and Horoculturals. So it's basically like a theological philosophical essay. And we actually get a big chunk of this pamphlet you know like you know six seven pages of this actual pamphlet is, re is reproduced for us um, and I actually I don't know if this is uh... well anyways he, he's, he's a character in the book I, I don't know if he's based on any real philosopher that's that's why I'm not sure I, I think it's just it's just fictionalized because it fits too closely to what Pierre is thinking about 
Um, now, on the way to the city, this, this is all mostly in Pierre's mind, and he, he has a lot of anxieties about um, him. He's a very conflicted figure throughout the whole novel. Quote, his thoughts were dark and wild. For a space, there was rebellion and horrible anarchy and infidelity in his soul. His temporary move might, must best be likened to that which, according to a singular story, once told in the pulpit by the reverend of a man of God, invaded the heart of an excellent priest. And then he tells a story about um, a, a priest who feels the evil one, you know, alongside while doing the, the holy sacrament. Um, so he's, he's very conflicted, but there's something kind of Promethean about what he's doing in his mind. He, he feels he's kind of rejuvenated in that he's, you know, he's kind of in charge of, of where they're going to go. That he's, he's leading them to a new place. But he still doesn't know if his conduct is right. Now, like a, a good intellectual youth, he turns to the philosophers for answers. And, and what we're told is essentially what we're told in Mardi and to a lesser degree in, in Moby Dick, that, you know, particularly in Mardi, is that the philosophers don't really help us because they're contradictory. They compete, you know, whether you go to Spinoza or Goethe or Plato or whoever, you're, you're not going to get an answer to your philosophical questions. And I, I'm pretty sure any most honest teachers of philosophy probably feel the same way, right? That when you teach philosophical arguments to your class, they, they might at best get better ways of arguing their own positions, uh, especially maybe like in ethics, but they don't necessarily come to some kind of truth, right? Um, I took a lot of philosophy classes and I've studied a lot of philosophy and I never felt closer to the truth. I've just been interested in these ideas. It, it's not the most efficient way to get to truth. I, I still think it's a very useful exercise, but if you're trying to find a specific answer to your questions, you know, like what's the right thing to do, it's philosophy is not always the best way to maybe get up to there. Um, but nevertheless, he, 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 he's engaging in this philosophical speculation and he reads this pamphlet. So the pamphlet's by this guy, Plotius Plinum. And um, there's a little bit of preface about the pamphlet. Mostly you have to read it ourselves if we want to to know what he, he's trying to add here. And basically the idea is that there's um, two souls, two possibilities, two possible souls, right? One is like the watchmaker soul, which is kind of the local perspective where we get our, our perspective of the world and we make our decisions based on our local conditions. Um, and that's most of us. Right, and that's called like the watchmaker soul. The other kind of soul is the chronometer soul, which is able to make decisions kind of universally. And this is this is reserved for Christ-like figures. And here I'll try to sum up based on I'll just quote what what sort of sums up the argument. That in things terrestrial or cultural, a man must not be governed by ideas celestial, chronometrical. That certain minor self-renunciations in his life his own mere instinct for his own everyday general well-being will teach him to make. But he must by no means make a complete unconditional sacrifice of himself on behalf of other beings or in any cause or any conceit. For does aught else completely unconditionally sacrifice itself um, for him? God's own son does not abate one tittle in its heat in July. However, you swoon with that heat in the sun. And if it did abate its heat on your behalf, then the wheat and the rye would not ripen. So and so, for the incidental benefit of one, the whole population would suffer. That's that's saying the crom the chronometrical right, the universal principles right, like summer heat, or maybe an ethical principle, or or Christ, 
is something that can't be sacrificed for our individual experiences and needs, right? Um, that there are kind of more lofty purposes. That seems to lead to a question, but the pamphlet's torn at the end, so he can't finish reading it, so he can remain ambiguous. Um, and right before the, the quoting of the passage, here's what Melville writes. Um, For me, it seems more the excellently illustrated restatement of a problem, that the solution of the problem itself. But as such, mere illustrations are almost universally taken for solutions. Therefore, it might help to the temporary quiet some of the inquiring mind and not be so wholly without use. At the worst, each person can now skip or read or rail for himself." End quote. That's both kind of funny and thematically very important, right? Melville here is saying, or the narrator is saying, that these kind of philosophical works tend to state problems. They don't give solutions, right? But we think they give solutions. We read philosophy for solutions. We impose solutions on them when, in fact, they're just stating problems. And then he adds, like, you can skip this. You don't have to read this if you don't want to. Um, I actually did, did read through it as best I could. It is kind of an odd inclusion in this book, but it's an odd book all around. Okay, so then we get to book 15. And book 15 is, is a bit of a side about, about basically Pierre's plans. And the plan is to go to see Glenn Stanley. Glenn Stanley is like a cousin of the family, someone he still has connection to. And they've known each other kind of from boyhood. They have some good memories together from, from their youth. So, you know, they've kind of lost touch with each other, but he thinks he can sort of show up at Glenn Stanley's house and be welcomed in. One reason he thinks he can go there is because Glenn Stanley sent a letter earlier saying, why don't you come by on your honeymoon with, with Lucy? We'll welcome you. So Pierre thinks, well, you invited me for a honeymoon, so why not the honeymoon with, with Isabella instead? So he kind of naively heads over to, to Glenn's. Um, we do get a bit of a background with the relationship. One interesting aspect of it is that Glenn Stanley did have his eye for Isabel for a while, and the engagement between Pierre and Lucy is something that bothered uh, Glenn quite a lot and, and kind of soured the relationship a little bit. Nevertheless, Pierre kind of, again, very foolishly and, and recklessly goes, into, goes to Glenn's house on Stanley's house hoping for sucker. And on their way there, uh, he actually writes a letter to, to Glenn saying he's going to come. So that, that's all chapter, or again, book, sorry, book, book 15, where we get into this background. It's fairly lengthy, but mostly it just sums up their, the ups and downs of their relationship and why Pierre had a feeling he could go and get some kind of aid, aid from, from, from Glenn Stanley. Then we get book 16, which is the, called The First Night of Their Arrival in the City. And this is about really them going to Glenn's house. And again, it's a, it's a fairly long, long chapter as far as this part of the book um, goes. Um, there's a really interesting um, passage at the beginning of this chapter, though, where they're, they're, on the, they're on the carriage and they're in, they're kind of entering the city. Now just listen to this. I, I really don't know what to make of this. Quote, and now ere descending the gradually sloping declivity, and just on its summit, as it were, the inmates of the coach, by numerous hard, painful joltings and ponderous dragging trundlings, are suddenly made sensible of some great change in the character of the road. The coach seems rolling over cannonballs of all calibers. Grasping Pierre's arm, Isabel eagerly and forebodingly demands, what is the cause of this most strange and unpleasant transition? The pavements, Isabel, for this is town. Isabel was silent. But the first time in for, in so, in for many weeks, Delhi voluntarily spoke. I feel not so soft as the green sword, Master Pierre. 
No, Miss Oliver, says Pierre very bitterly. The buried heads of some dead citizens have perhaps come to the surface. Sir, said Deli, are you so, are you, are you, are they so hard-hearted there, asked Isabel. Ask yonder payment, Isabel. Milk dropped from the milk can's can, milkman's can in December freezes not more quickly on the stones than it does on snow-white innocence, if in poverty it chanced to fall on these streets. Why, then God, help my hard fate, Master Pierre, sobbed Deli. Why didst thou drag the poor outcast like me? And when they go on with this, and she's starting to, she moves to trying to explain, to get an explanation about why Pierre had this, had this kind of sympathy for her. But the passage is, is bizarre where they enter into the, like the stones of the city road, right from the dirt and the grass of the, of the inner, inner town roads, right? They go into the pavement and that's why you get this kind of clobbering. But <clears throat> Pierre essentially says they're the, they're the, Buried hearts of the dead citizens coming to the surface. That's how he acquaints these rocks, these hardened hearts of, of this urban residents. I, I don't know if this is like a more of an urban rule kind of conflict. And this Pierre has this idea of the city as full of hard-hearted individuals. But it's it's rather bizarre. And this, of course, kind of freaks out Delhi, who's like, why did you bring me to this this, this horrible place? So anyway, they finally find Glenn Stanley's house. And they kind of just start saying, where's, or Pierre starts saying, where's Mr. Stanley? Where is he? Let me in. And he eventually gets in and there's like a party going on. There's other people there. And right away, Glenn Stanley doesn't even acknowledge them. And he essentially denies them. And he says, I do not know him. It is entirely, this is Glenn. I do not know him. It is entirely a mistake. Why don't the servants take him out and let the music go on? And he just continues his conversation. This offends Pierre, who basically challenges him to a duel, saying, By heaven I had a knife, Glenn. I could prick thee on the spot, let out all thy glendinging blood, and then soak the vile remainder. Hound and base blot on general humanity. And Glenn again just says, like, these people are nuts. These people are crazy. I don't know what's going on. So we got a nice kind of classic scene of the crash party and the... the the uncomfortable host dealing with uh, the uninvited guest, something we've seen so many times in, in literature and film. Um, but it's, you know, they're forced then out. They, there's not much they can do. And, and because Glenn Stanley did not take them in, they're forced to go to a hotel. And that more or less finishes what I want to say in this part of the story about their adventures in, in the city. But we do have two more chapters before we kind of reach our 100-page quota. The first is book 16, 17 called The Young, Amer Young American Literature. And the next is called, it's book 18, Pierre as a Young Juvenile Author Reconsidered. So we learn something that, as far as I know, wasn't even mentioned before, which makes me think that Melville adds this as kind of an afterthought when he was writing this part of the story that Pierre has been writing novels and he has actually got a bit of a reputation as a novelist already. So these are these two chapters are essentially an aside. So we learn that actually he's written enough that editors have been coming to him, you know, about publishing his poems and stories and things in a in a volume called The Complete Works of Glendon. So he's he's not un, unknown at the time. He's, he's he's got a bit of a reputation. 
Now, let's talk about the name of this chapter. This is book 17. It's called Young American Literature. It's not a young American writing literature. It's young American literature. And the whole chapter is about Pierre's early literary career. So I think what Melville's trying to say here is that as America tries to become literary, tries to write literature, tries to produce actual works of literature, to engage in its renaissance, it's not going to be accepted by others. America's always going to be the frontier story. It's always going to be maybe the, like for Melville's case, it was a sea fiction, right? The adventure story. James Fenimore Cooper, who else? You know, Washington Irving, those people, that's, that's uh, what they'll accept. When you start getting to the Hawthorne and Melville effort to try to push the boundaries, the door's going to close. Right, so Pierre is not just Melville. Pierre is American literature, trying to break free of its of its bounds, and um, of course we have Pierre as a character trying to break free of his bounds in leaving uh, his rural estate, go to the city, and in doing so trying to become a, a real writer. So that's why we get so much background on the kinds of, that he was kind of already a famous writer, writing kind of popular stories. So anyway, um, book 18 is mostly then about his plans to, to do something new with his writing and, and to commit to making his living as a writer, right? That's how he's going to support his little family, his little odd family uh, in the city is by becoming a writer. So he's already had these leads. He's had these connections with editors and publishers who want to kind of push his career forward. Um, but they want more of the same. And he's going to try to do a little bit, something quite different in his writing. And in this chapter, Melville Wright just calls out, I think, his critics, saying, quote, It is well, no well enough known that the best productions of the best human intellects are generally regarded by those intellects as mere immature freshman exercises, wholly worthless in themselves, except as initiatives for entering the great university of God after death. Certain as it is that if any inferences could be drawn from observations of the familiar lives of men of the great mark, their finest things... Those which become the foolish glory of the world are not only very poor and inconsiderate to themselves, but often positively distasteful. They would rather not have the book in the room. In minds comparably inferior as compared with above, the surmising considerations so sad and unfit that they become careless of what they write, go to their deaths with discontent, and only remain there, victims to headaches and pains in the back by the hard constraint of some social necessity. Equal paltry and despicable to them are the works thus composed, born of unwillingness and the bill of the baker, the rickety offspring of a parent, careless of life herself and reckless of the germ life she contains. Let not the short-sighted world for a moment imagine that any vanity lurks in such minds, only hired to appear on the stage, not voluntarily claiming the public attention. Their utmost life redness and glow is but rouge washed off in private with bitterest tears. Their laugh only rings because it's hollow and their answering laugh is no laugh to them. End quote. I mean, wow, it's like exactly what is the case with Melville in a way that he uh, gets disregarded at the time, but posterity does remember him and remembers his, his, his greatness. The works that were rejected in his, in his lifetime were the works that he'll be most uh, remembered for, including this one, Pierre. Although I'm not sure how many people read Pierre. People read Moby Dick, right? They read Barnaby the Scribner, uh, Benito's, um, what's that one called? Uh, Benito Sereno, Bailey Bud, these things. But 
I don't think they read Pierre too much. It's a bit too odd. Uh, I still think it's an odd novel, um, but we we get. I think in this part of the story, we get a closer kind of sense of what Melville's trying to do in in this story, and it, it's starting to grow on me a little bit more as I as I reread it and get into it this far. So um, I guess that does it for part part three of Pierre. In in the next episode, we'll finish up with Pierre. We'll look at books. 19 through I think it goes through 26 yeah 26 and a lot happens in in this part it's a little more plot heavy it's a little more conventional storytelling in the last part we get a lot of plot lines to to wrap up um, but uh, a lot of interesting things yet to talk about in terms of Pierre so in the next episode I'll, I'll finish up my thoughts of um, on kind of the play-by-play -play of what happens in the novel and then I'll give uh, what I think are the major important themes of, of, of Pierre and, and why it should be read and considered and what it can tell us about American literature in, in the middle of the 19th century. So um, that's it. So until next time, uh, let me know what you think. Uh, send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com or just leave your comments below on, on Podbean or leave a review on iTunes. Uh, as always, thanks for your... Um, for listening and i'll see you next time with part four of my thoughts on pierre or the ambiguities by herman melville <laughs>